We need to rebuild the manufacturing base of this country. When I traveled around to all these counties in Iowa, I went to a lot of small towns like Sydney and, 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 and Hamburg down in Fremont County, and I was in the other day in Newton, where they've lost jobs to overseas. Why? Because we're not competitive. Looking for a little light to illuminate the truth and the stillness after everything is blown away. Life fades in the cuts and the struggles. I just need a light at the end of the tunnel. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Adam, it is very exciting to have you back in the office. Yeah, after two months of paternity leave. I know you're very excited to be back. Somewhat happy to be back. (laughs) Somewhat missing your smiling baby. Very much. Today is Tuesday, January 10th, and that was Republican presidential candidate Rick Santorum. You heard at the top during a debate last month in Iowa. Today on the podcast, we're going to flip ahead to the next big primary state, South Carolina. I have spent a lot of the last year in South Carolina researching a big story on Greenville. It's a factory town up in the Appalachian foothills in the northwest corner of the state. And it is a place that I think you can really see some of the key dynamics in job creation and job destruction. Sort of what is the state of the American worker, particularly the American factory worker? Great. Okay. But first, we're going to do our Planet Money Indicator today with Caitlin Kenny. Today's Planet Money Indicator is $20 billion. Consumer borrowing increased by $20 billion from October to November of this year. That's according to a new report out from the Federal Reserve. And this is the biggest monthly increase since November 2001. Whoa. Yeah. True? It's huge. And basically what it means is that people are feeling good enough about their current financial situation that they're willing to borrow more money. They're confident enough to borrow it because they believe that they'll be able to pay it back. Wait, or it means that they're borrowing more money because they don't have money to buy the stuff that they want to buy, right? I mean, especially like Christmas season, holidays, people could just be borrowing because they can't afford to buy the stuff that they want to buy for the holidays. No, that is true. And there's reasons to be cautious here. But the biggest chunk of this borrowing that the Fed just reported was what they call non-revolving debt. And these are things like college loans and car loans, big loans that are spread out over many years. And in order to take on that kind of debt, you definitely have to be feeling really optimistic to know that you're going to have to keep paying it monthly for year after year. So I think we should sort of just take this like we did with the most recent jobs report. It looks good, so we can be cautiously optimistic. I like it. Okay. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks. On to South Carolina. So, Adam, it seems like a great time to do a podcast about South Carolina. The Republican candidates are all about to swarm into the state with all their staffers in tow, and we will definitely be hearing them talk about jobs. It is the main issue in South Carolina. The state really needs jobs. Now, I got to say, I have in the past been a peripatetic journalist just hurtling myself at wherever the hot news story is, but I have really devoted time to the question of jobs in South Carolina, a lot of time. In fact, I've been working for much of the last year on this package of stories. There's going to be a few stories on Morning Edition later this week on Thursday and Friday. And also, I have a big story, one of the longest magazine stories I've ever written in the current issue, the January-February issue of The Atlantic. The cover of The Atlantic. Yeah, it's really exciting, actually, I have to say. It's very flattering. Um, So the reason I became obsessed with Greenville, South Carolina, is that I felt like it is the perfect place to ask a question. What is the state of the low-skilled worker 
in America, specifically the low-skilled manufacturing worker. You, you always hear this idea that manufacturing is dead in America. We don't make anything anymore. That is not true. The statistics are very clear. The dollar value of what we make keeps going up and up and up, depending on which statistics you believe were either just above China or just behind China. But we are, with China, one of the two great global manufacturing centers. What has collapsed, what has not died, but dramatically fallen is manufacturing jobs, manufacturing employment. So in the old American world, you had these big factories employing lots and lots and lots of relatively low-skilled workers. You didn't need a lot of training to work in them. And you had a shot at a pretty decent living. Now, you can go to these massive factories and you almost see nobody. It's just, you know, one person sort of hidden behind some really complex machine and then not another person for 20, 30 yards. But those people are far more educated. They have far higher skills. And so I was curious about this transition and what happens to the people who can't make it, the people who, for whatever reason, can't acquire the skills for the new world. Greenville really represents both worlds. It was a thriving center of the old style of manufacturing, lots and lots of jobs for low-skilled people. And it's a really thriving center for the new school of manufacturing, far fewer jobs, but far better jobs for the highly skilled. So, Hannah, if you will come with me and... Deputy Sheriff Mike East and his boss, Sheriff Scott Wilson, on a little tour of Greenville Past. There's so many mills they're hiding behind other mills. and There's a mill behind every blade of grass. <laughs> you got police to show you around. Yeah, I thought it was a great way to see the place. The, these two guys, they're, you know, they're now older guys in senior management. But in the 80s and 90s, these were patrolmen. And they told me these mills were packed with people. And they were just out there every Friday and Saturday night breaking up fights, breaking up, you know, this guy slept with that guy's wife or, you know, this guy was drunk and being a loudmouth or whatever. And they describe this world that you have mill after mill after mill. And each mill was sort of the center of a thriving mill village. You worked in the mill, you lived in mill housing, you went drinking in the mill bar, you went to church in the mill church. I mean, this is the old vision you have of just a company town. Now, over the last 10 or 15 years, these mills just closed one after another. They couldn't keep up with the low-cost stuff coming in from China, the T-shirts and textiles and different apparel that China was exporting to us. And it just left – I mean, these are now just almost ghost towns, just very, very depressed villages. But there was this one living relic we passed. Now here's a lively redneck bar, Christine's place. And still open. Still ready. You went into Christine's bar. I was kind of terrified, I have to say. I really was. There's this sign outside that says, come to the holler for a cold swaller at Christine's. <laughs> but these cops were telling me like, how many, this was the most dangerous place. Like, people got shot there. There'd be knife fights. There'd be fist fights. Like, oh, that is a tough bar. And, you know, I'm this kind of nerdy Jewish guy from New York. And you. Look <laughs> who's talking. And... <laughs> So the cops left, and I decided, I got to go. I got to go to Christine's place. I got to see what this is about. But I was really nervous. What's going to happen? But I get up the guts, and I and I walk inside. Once I got inside, I was like, oh, I feel like a fool forever being nervous. The room was completely empty except for, like, three old guys just nursing their beers at the bar and the owner laughing in the background. And it, it is anything but threatening. It was sort of a, a sweet, decrepit old age home for former mill workers. And 
I ended up spending hours and hours there and just hearing all sorts of stories about the old Greenville, the Greenville that these people came from, when the economy was booming, when this bar was packed morning, noon, and night. The mills were running three shifts. Every meal Hill had, their drinkers, that when they got off work or before they went to work, that, you know, patronized their local pub. Before they went to work sometimes? Sometimes. Sometimes they'd carry one to work. <laughs> that was Wayne Statton, one of the charming regulars I met. I really like these guys. I also met Terry Suttles. She's the bar's owner. She actually had an amazing story. She grew up working in a mill from a very young age, but then she became um, sort of a religious Christian. She left the mill village world, but her dad ran Christine's place. It was actually her dad's aunt who was Christine, the original Christine. But when her dad died on his deathbed, he said to Terry, this sweet Christian woman, you have to come run my bar. And you have to promise me you're going to keep that bar open no matter what. So Terry came and at first very reluctantly, although now she's mixed about it. But she told me that, you know, when she's there, she can remember the good old times when the mill economy was really flourishing. You could get a job. Everybody knows somebody that worked in the mill. And usually they was hiring. And if you had a friend, you could always get in, you know. I wasn't really old enough to work, but I went to work. Like 16 or younger? I was about 16. Did you drop out of high school? Yes. Which everyone did around here, yeah. right? Why? You made more money. You could just make money. I mean, and it was good money. Oh, that is like an America that does not exist anymore. It does not exist anymore. Exactly. I mean, it would have been almost nutty to continue finishing high school. Why? Everything you need to know to thrive in the world, you were going to learn on the mill. And that was a really important part of the mill work. Uh, People started there. I mean, back 100 years ago, they might have started when they were seven or eight. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it might be more like 16. But everything you needed to know, even to become a relatively highly paid, specialized worker, you know, someone who really knew the inner workings of the looms or, you know, knew how to fix the, the cotton carting machines or whatever... You were probably a high school dropout who started the mill at 16, and now you're 28 or 38 or 48, and you just learned everything right there on the mill while you were working. And you could make enough money to live and have kids and pay for things. Yeah. People said you would own your own home, you own your own truck, and crucially, you'd own your own boat. And you would have, you know, a week or two a year that you could afford a vacation. They weren't rich by today's standards, but they did very well by their own standards, and, and they knew it. We, we've had a good life. We've had a fantasy life. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say we've had a fantasy life? We've had a fantasy life. I thought that was amazing. That was Wayne Statton, who you heard earlier, and his buddy Larry Hale. They were both mill truck drivers, so they would take cotton to the mill, and then they would take the finished products and drive them all over the country, wherever they needed to be. A fantasy <laughs> life? Yeah, we've done things that a lot of people dream of doing that they'd never, ever have a chance of doing. Like what? Uh, like when I went to Canada and I started dating this hairstylist up in Canada who wanted to marry me. And, uh, and down in Mexico, the things I've done. And when I lived in Houston, Texas, we lived a fantasy life. We lived our life to the fullest. you got to cherish everything that's out in front of you. you got to grasp it and love it. And if you don't, you're losing out. Love everything. Well, I, I wouldn't say everything, Larry. Yeah, uh, yeah I agree with you there. <laughs> One thing I noted in this bar, the old guys, they had made enough. They, they had a pension or they had enough Social Security. They owned their home and their boat and their car, and they're doing okay. But 
their kids, their kids have left. If you're not going to be able to get that education, that that higher skill, there, there's just nothing here for you. So Terry, who owns the bar, I mean, at, at this point, you know, she's she's pretty upfront. Her clientele is dying. They're they're getting too old to come in, and she just doesn't know what the future holds. It's not not as busy as it used to be. So this would have just been packed. You couldn't. Yes. And it, it was all three shifts because of the meals running. It was all three shifts, you know. So now, now we open up at 11, and we're probably usually closed by 10. And you used to stay open all night long, you know, just, and just don't keep it going. Now you barely can keep it going. As a matter of fact, I'm fixing to start another job because it's, it's just not working. It's, I mean, it's not paying everything. This bar isn't enough to live on? No. What job do you want? I'm, I'm, I'm a painter. Commercial. Commercial painting? Yeah. yeah. Uh, office buildings. Oh. Was that sad to have to get a job other than the bar? Yeah. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't in my plans. <laughs> but You thought you'd just retire here. Yeah. But so I'm raising grandchildren, too. So. so I'm getting the picture of definitely familiar, like, dying American manufacturing town that we've heard a lot about where the jobs are just sort of disappearing. But you were saying Greenville is also a place where something different is happening. Yeah. So all these mills I visited are all in one corner of Greenville County. And I drove, you know, literally over the train tracks to I-85, the interstate, which is the center of this massive industrial rebirth. It goes from southern Virginia all the way to Montgomery, Alabama, and all along it, with Greenville being really at the heart of it, are auto plants and high-tech manufacturing plants. I mean, just within a few minutes' drive of Christine's place, there's the BMW plant down the road in Spartanburg, BMW's only big manufacturing plant in America, Michelin's big tire manufacturing plant. I went to a place that specializes in cutting incredibly complex high-tech metals with incredibly precise high-tech tools where you'd really need to understand all sorts of things about chemistry and physics to work there. And these are factories that make a lot of money. This is a booming part of our economy. This is a very healthy part of our economy. But as I mentioned, they generally employ far fewer workers than you would have seen at the old mills. And the workers they do employ, at a very minimum, need a high school degree. But to get the really decent jobs, you need much more than that. You need some really specialized skill. After visiting a bunch of factories, the, the one that I thought really represented this trend I wanted to understand about the distance between low-skill and high-skill work was a factory owned by Standard Motor Products. Standard Motor Products makes replacement parts for car engines. So they, they do it under a lot of brand names like Napa and AutoZone. So it's decent chance that people who have replacement parts in their car have standard replacement parts. They just don't know it. And when I first went, you know, you think auto parts plant. I don't know what you pick. I picture big machines, grease, and, like, big hulking guys and, you know... Like blue jumpsuits. Exactly. Well, they do have the blue jumpsuits, but other than that, it was very, very different. It was uh, people often hunched over tables with microscopes, people typing into computers attached to very clean machines that do their work inside of a box in a very clean, precise way. It, It looked almost more like a really big high school science lab than what I would picture as an auto parts plant. So like big robotic parts that are like doing all the work sort of very separate from the few people that are actually on the floor. Exactly. And it's not nobody. I mean, they employ, you know, a thousand or so people. 
but it's a huge place, you know, turning out just hundreds of thousands of parts. So, so the you know, the person per part or the person per dollar value of output is much, much lower than it used to be. The expensive things in that building are the machines. Yeah. Now, the woman that I ended up spending most of my time focused on and, what, and the person the article is really about is, is a young woman named Madeline Maddie Parlier. She's 23. She has two kids, but she's a single mom. She's pretty short, blonde bob and very intense. I mean, she has these big blue eyes and just stares right at you, and she will tell you her entire life story. She's totally straightforward about the poor decisions she's made, the good decisions she's made, and how she wants to make a great life for her kids and how hard that is. She used to work making kayaks, which is a real manual labor job, you know, really putting your shoulder in it, you know, carving out the shape of the kayaks. So she came to this auto parts plant. I think she had a vision kind of like ours of a lot of tough work. And she comes and her job is to push little buttons. You know, I'm here all day and I'm used to sweating. I mean, really sweating. You know, I come here and I'm putting pieces and I was like, what am I doing? Because <laughs> it's so I'm many a, machines doing what people... Right. It's, it's so different to see how far factories have come from the old time that I'm used to. It's an eye-opener. It's so automated. I mean, I watched her train another new worker, and it literally took two minutes to be trained in this job. But that is not the growth area of employment here. I mean, the growth area of employment are the people who actually know how to trouble check those new manufacturing machines, how to run the computer software that runs those machines. People with a lot more skill than Maddie. I see a microscope. Yeah, we have a microscope, a height stand, snap gauges, ID gauges. We use bore mics, go no go plugs. We do. We run uh, here about nine That's different. That's Ralph Young, and I Brass came to think of him as the, the perfect model uh, of the new American factory worker. He knows everything. I mean, you should just see the other really highly skilled workers just like staring in reverence at Ralph Young. I mean, these machines that cost half a million dollars and are incredibly complex, electronics and hydraulics, he can just take them all apart, put them all back together. But that's not even a fraction of what he knows. He knows the different kinds of aluminum that go into a fuel injector and how those different kinds of aluminum react to heat and react to cold. He's a qualified electrician and a qualified plumber. He just has this encyclopedic knowledge. And At the heart of this process is something he also is an incredible expert at, CNC, Computer Numerically Controlled. It's a complicated computer language that tells these really expensive machines exactly how to cut the metals. And Ralph, no surprise here, is also an incredible specialist in CNC programming. When I came here 20 years ago, we didn't have CNC equipment. It was all manual lays, screw machines. It was more of the hammer and screwdriver fix where now it's it's all finesse. That phrase, now it's all finesse. I felt like that should be the motto of American manufacturing. Welcome to Greenville. Now it's all finesse. Now it's all finesse. And not everyone knows how to do finesse. I mean, you, you know, I pictured this one machine, if we went back in time, would be replaced by dozens and dozens of machines where people are, you know, cutting the metal themselves, moving the metal themselves and not able to do things that we can do now. I mean, I I learned an awful lot about a fuel injector, which is this incredibly precise instrument, which couldn't exist without this new machinery. Parts of it are so precise that a virus couldn't fit 
through two pieces of metal. It's it's at this fraction of a micron, hundredths of a thousandths of an inch. And that's something that someone like Ralph can do. I asked uh, Ralph's boss, Tony Scalzidi, you know, I told him I've had some computer classes. I'm, you know, like to think of myself as like an amateur computer nerd. And, you know. You've told me more than once that you are a Mac tech. Yeah, which, by the way, is not a good thing to tell people because then they want you to give them Mac tech <laughs> advice. <laughs> so I asked Tony, so, you know, I got a BA. I have some computer skills. Like, would you hire me to do this job? No, of course not. Because you wouldn't know how to run this operation. You wouldn't understand the, the process if there's a problem. And the risk of having you being able to come up to speed with training would be a risk I wouldn't be willing to take. What's like, the like, risk? We could train you for six months and you don't get it. <laughs> oh, Jim. And what I realize is it's not just book smarts, unfortunately, for me. Um, there is a lot of book smarts. I mean, there's a lot of reading and learning, you know, just and math you have to learn. But there's this level of skill that I, I don't think I could ever acquire. I mean, th to be able to put some raw metal in a box, close the door, not see what's going on, just look at a screen that is just telling you the x-axis and the y-axis, I mean, not, not, not a picture, just, just numbers and letters, and somehow be able to picture in your mind what's happening inside this machine and, and figure out when something's going wrong. I just don't think I could ever acquire those skills. And you know, Tony agreed with me that I probably couldn't. He said about half the people he trains don't acquire those skills. I, I met one of the newest workers on these machines. He had three years of schooling, two and a half years at another factory learning similar machines, and then it's several months at the factory to learn how to. So realistically, I would be three or four years away from being able to get the six months training to, to operate the machine. And that's a huge amount of expense to invest in one person who then either won't get it, and that's a 50-50 chance, or if they do get it, might just go across the street and work for your competitors. And then that's only part of the expense. What if they think I've got it, but it turns out I'm not quite as good as they thought I was? A seven or eight micron wrong adjustment in this machine costs us $25,000 workhead spindle. I mean, really? Two seconds, we could lose $25,000. In two seconds? In two seconds. Why I wouldn't hire you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'd think I'd probably do that. <laughs> On accident. Yeah. <laughs> and that was what was amazing about the technological change we've seen in manufacturing. And by the way, I think this applies to, to a lot of other places as well. Technology at the high end means you're more valuable. I mean, if you're going to invest in several million dollars of machinery, someone like Ralph who knows how to operate and repair that machinery is now way more valuable than any one worker was in the old world. Ralph really has bargaining power. He can really command a higher wage. But technology has the other side as well. It makes things incredibly simple where workers become almost interchangeable automatons. You know, if, if there's a process that takes two minutes to learn, you haven't invested anything in that person. If that person, you know, shows up late one day or whatever, it's just very easy to dismiss them and just get someone else to replace them. But I don't even think of us as having jobs like that in the United States anymore. We've lost a lot of them. In, in just the last decade, we've gone from more than 18 million manufacturing jobs to around 12 million. So that's a third of the manufacturing jobs that were left. And Maddie's job is vulnerable. How long does it take to learn this? It takes like not even five minutes <laughs> because it's it does it for you. All you do is just put the piece in, 
push the clamps down and push the finger. The only reason I learned that she does have a job is that it's a little more expensive to get a machine to do what she does. I talked it over with Tony Scalziti, her boss, and he said, sure, it, it, technologically it's very easy to get a robotic arm to do what she does, but it costs around $100,000. So Maddie's cheaper. So Maddie keeps her job. But let's say you know, there's some in, new enhancement in robot arm technology and that arm becomes 50,000 instead of 100,000 or there's some factory in Mexico or China or something that figures out how to do this process much, much cheaper. You know, it's it's hard to see how Maddie keeps her job if she's not able to acquire those skills anytime soon. Now, um, I wanted to understand how this all looks from the whole corporate level. So Standard Motor Products has more than a dozen factories all over the U.S. and Mexico and Poland. And I was surprised to learn that they're run out of Queens, New York, out of Long Island City, just across the water from here, by Larry Sills. He's the third generation. His dad ran the company and his grandfather ran the company. And he's grooming his son, Eric, to take over the company when Larry's done. And they've had to lay people off over the years. And we asked him, what, what's that like? It's horrible. It's gut-wrenching. And... We, we try, because we are a family company. We're not a big Wall Street type company. We're a family company. We have a very strong loyalty to our people, and we think they feel the same back. So this is brutal. So why does he do it? It's up to him, right? He can keep people. If it's so brutal, he should keep their jobs. It's not up to him, in a way. And let me just interject something, because Larry would be very mad at me if I didn't say this. He said Maddie herself is a very valued worker. He can't guarantee she'll have a job for a long time, but he wants to keep her. And if this particular job goes away, he's going to do everything he can to keep her on staff. And I've spent a lot of time with this company. I came to really believe that they, frankly, if you were an investor, you you would wish that they fired more people. They keep people on longer than other companies might because of that family-run ethic. But Standard Motor is family-run, but it's also a publicly traded company. That means, by law, Larry's job is to return value to his shareholders. He has to. And he says returning value to his shareholders means creating auto parts at a quality and a price that people will actually buy. So he says he's not the one making the key decision. The decision is not made by us. The decision is made when the consumer walks into Walmart and there's two products on the shelf and one is made in this country and one is made in China and the one in China is is 50% cheaper than the one that's made here and they choose the one that's made in China. That's when the decision is made. And that's why Larry has had to do all sorts of things. I mean, until just four or five years ago, he was still making products in Queens, New York. Nobody makes, like, competitive manufactured goods like that in, in Queens, New York. But he it was a family-run company. As he says, he grew up with the people who worked in the factory. He just didn't want to leave that business. But he's had to, over the course of the last few decades, outsource more and more of his manufacturing to China. He, you know, opened factories in Puerto Rico and then Mexico and then Poland, simply because there was no way to compete based on U.S.-made goods. He said he's had this experience when he's been forced to close down a factory in, in a politician's district, that the politician will come to him and, and just really upset that he took jobs out of their district. Why did you leave? Why, what could we have done to make you stay? I won't give you the names. But they're, 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 what happened? What did we do wrong? He said, 
he didn't do anything wrong. There, there was no tax policy you could change. There was no uh, any kind of policy. It, it just wouldn't work. Don't waste your money on that. Don't give me a $2 an hour rebate. Don't uh, give me a, a real estate tax holiday or something. I'll take your money if you're going to give it to me. But but it's it's not going to change the decision. And when I read things like this, when when they say, oh, we're going to waive the payroll tax for two, for two years, so now you're going to hire people, that's utter nonsense. You, you, <laughs> you give me the money, I'll take it. But it's not going to change what I do. Now, what was so striking about Maddie is she really knows all this. She knows that the old days are over. She she knows that technology and low-wage workers in other countries are in a position to replace her someday. She knows that she really needs to go back to school. She really needs to get those skills or else she's not going to be in a really good position and that means her kids aren't going to be in a good position. But she's a single mom. She has these two very sweet kids and she doesn't know what to do. I want to go back to school, but... It's the time. If I want to go back, I have to go back on my time, and I, I don't have time. You know, when I get off work, I go pick my kids up, and that's it. My life revolves around my children. What do you think education, like if you don't get education, let's just say for whatever reason you just never go back to school, what, what do you think that means for your future? I'm always going to be where I am. I mean, to be honest. So when you say I'll always be where I am, where are you? I live with my parents because I can't afford anywhere else, and I have my kids, and I work. You know, factories are not bad. I love my job, but, you know, I'd love to be above an assembly one day. I'd love to be here in this office, (laughs) you know? I I mean, what office were you in? We were in the office with all the engineers, the highly Uh trained engineers and high-level managers who ran the factory. And I know Maddie could do it. She's great at math. She, you know, she graduated high school with honors. She, she definitely has, you know, management potential. But there's so many, so many things she doesn't know. And the saddest thing is when she says, if I don't get that skill, I'll always stay where I am. I mean, frankly, that's probably a too optimistic assessment. That's, that's wishful thinking. If she doesn't get those skills, there's every reason to think she's just going to fall farther and farther behind. And I came to think this is one of the core challenges of American manufacturing, one of the core challenges of the American economy. How do we get people with low skill who this country used to need, used to have a lot of work for? How do we get those people to become the high-skilled people? How does Maddie get to become Ralph? What is the answer to that? I've just decided, maybe because it makes me feel better, that Maddie's going to be okay. I mean, you you just spend five minutes with her and you feel like this is someone who's going to be okay. She's going to figure it out. When her kids are a little older, they're only two and four now, she's going to, you know, they'll be in school. She'll go to school. She's going to figure it out. But there's this fundamental shift in, in how America works that for all of American history, even before, you know, going back to the Mayflower, for all of American history, for most people, There's been sort of this wind at our back. There's been this enough economic growth, enough economic momentum that most people, obviously with major exceptions, but most people just were able to do better, even if they had relatively low skills, even if they didn't have access to education. They were able to do better than their parents did, and their kids could do even better than them. And for right now, it seems like that wind at the back 
it, it, it's died down. And maybe even it's, for, for some people in America, it's a wind pushing them at their front. And I, I think that calls for major solutions. It, it's just a fundamental shift in, in how America works. And, and I think we're just, you know, at the, at the early stages of even trying to figure out how to, how to deal with that. Adam's excellent article about Greenville, South Carolina, and Maddie in the current issue of The Atlantic Magazine, and we will put a link up to it on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'll also have a couple stories on Morning Edition this Thursday and Friday. We'd also love you to visit our Facebook page, and as always, we want to hear what you thought of today's show. Please email us at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.